You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. This is Marcy Swenson, Vice President of Compliance for Healthicity, and I am replacing CJ for the day who normally does these podcasts. So I'm excited to be here, and I also have Emily Haley with me here. So welcome, Emily. Hi. So um, let me give a little introduction of Emily, and then we'll ask her a few more questions about her experience. But Emily, after completing a a bachelor in English literature, Emily worked as a physician recruiter. And then she returned to law school and completed her Juris Doctorate. After she graduated, she practiced law in Colorado and Utah before joining the legal department of Deseret Mutual, which is a health plan. Um, Then uh, with a strong desire, and I've seen this through um, working with Emily, a strong desire to be more directly involved with patients, caregivers, and clinical operations. She then joined Intermountain Healthcare, and shortly after she joined them, she became the Chief Privacy Officer and Compliance Director, so they just loved her immediately. (laughs) So within your um, role in privacy, uh, you know, Tell us a few more of your responsibilities or maybe some big projects or things that you got to be involved with. Being the chief privacy officer at Intermountain was really kind of a dream job for me. It was a perfect mix of legal background with people skills, with operations. So you could you could find any scenario to apply HIPAA regulations to you name it, and they're working with it. So to get to manage a team where we we were responsible for all the policies and procedures, over 60 of them, reviewed about 40 incidents a week and did a risk assessment on those, handled all of the business associate and data security agreements. Um, let's see what else. We... Beside one of one of my favorite responsibilities was just to be from the ground up working with business development instead of that approach where you just come to compliance to get a yes or no. Can we do our project? It was let's help you design a compliant project from the ground from up. the first. So that entrepreneurial side was really fun for me. Yeah. And ultimately, that probably saved a lot of people time rather than jumping in later and having to go back and retrace steps that should have been done differently. Because business development likes to move fast and create as they go on the fly, and it just did not work to hand them kind of a big flow chart workflow that they'd have to wait months to get through, hoops to jump through. Yeah, or tell them, oh, you did this wrong, you got to go back and redo it. (laughs) Go back to square one and then let me know when you fix that. I liked to just meet with them regularly, build relationships, learn, and it taught... 
it taught me the different ways we can use data as well. It was good to have to research a new innovative way to use data because there was a constant tension between protect the data, use the data to survive. So it was an incredible position to have, probably led me to working in care transformation now. That's great. So uh, I often get questions from um, some of the clients and people who work with Healthicity because they're very worried about doing a risk analysis. So, of course, we know that this is a requirement to conduct regular risk um, a regular risk analysis and to do risk management. But can you tell us, I think people get a little confused on, well, what does that, what does risk analysis and what's risk assessment and what's, you know, work plans and risk mitigation and all those terms kind of get messed up in, in um, you know, as far as how we use them and how people understand them. So why don't you tell us what you think a gap analysis to a risk analysis compared to a risk management plan. I would love to do that. That was a an interesting lesson, me included. You hear the terms risk analysis, risk management plan all the time, and they're used interchangeably. And then even just logically, you think, well, let's pull out the OCR toolkit, identify where we have gaps, and those are our risks. And we and we just convert that to a risk analysis. It's not really the case. That's, that's kind of where you go with common sense, but it's not the case. The OCR toolkit is what you as a covered entity or business associate can go through and say, okay, which of these elements are required for us to comply with? Which of them are addressable? If we can't implement what's addressable because it's unreasonable, what are we going to do? You can, preparing your documentation that way. But that document is really typically a privileged document. It's, it's what you as a covered entity, it's how you are working with those addressable items, like encryption, per se. Mm-hmm. But it's really privileged. You don't use that and kind of save as and make that a risk analysis. The risk analysis is where you look at the risks your entity has. You look at where you have PHI, you have that EPHI inventory, You look at where it is, what could cause a breach, what kind of risks you have, and how likely are those to occur. So the gap is like, okay, these are some holes we have. But the risk analysis is even if you don't think that you have a gap or a hole, you're still assessing the likeliness or the probability of that risk, an issue with that risk happening. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the... And even beyond holes, it's more of your personal... You know, the rules let the covered entity, you know, the rules are meant to suit many different sizes of entities. That's why they make some things addressable. They know that the tiny entity cannot implement the same things as the huge entity. <laughs> so the toolkit just helps you know what's required, what's addressable, and review that and analyze whether you can implement that and why you can't or where you want to go in the future. That's not the, the what we call a risk analysis that you'd submit to the OCR. That was a huge learning for me. Yeah. The risk management plan comes after that, and that is just a document showing how you're going to implement safeguards, how you're going to reduce the likelihood of that risk occurring. So that's so, your risk mitigation is another term. Or work plan. Yeah. Lots of your people action call plans. It work plan. 
So I think it's interesting, again, in these terms, because like, for example, in various um, OIG guidance for compliance programs, they use the term risk assessment. But then the OCR uses the term risk analysis. So in some ways, the various agencies are creating the confusion terms. Absolutely. But those two things are actually quite similar. Risk assessment versus risk analysis. Um, just two different agencies using two different terms. And then, of course, the same thing with risk management plan or a risk mitigation plan or work plan. Those are kind of the same thing. Um, I'm sure there's some expert out there that could tell me maybe even some differences between those, but but in general, those yeah. kind of could be categorized as the same thing. Yeah. So, okay, well, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com. Okay, we're back now, and today we're with Emily Haley, and we're talking about privacy. Um, We were just finishing off a conversation about gap analysis, risk analysis, and risk management plans. So what would you say, now that we've covered the definitions of what those are, what's required for a risk analysis? Now, I, I want to ask that question, but then I also want to bring up some other factors for, for our, of course, you to consider when, when talking about this, but for our audience, too. So everybody is familiar with um, OCR's Phase 2 desk audits, um, where they audited 63 covered entities and I think like 40-something business associates. And they used a scale from 1 to 5, 1 being the very best um, uh, uh, risk analysis and risk management plan, and um, five being the very worst. And the surprising thing here was more than half of both the business associates and the covered entities had scored below, or a four and a five, a four and a five, so not even a three, a four and a five. So based on that, and that's that's quite shocking. Uh, that means most of us out there are just not doing the right things. So what do you think is required for a risk analysis? Well, it, it is so interesting when you look at the results of those phase two audits as far as did these entities not know what to do? Did everyone take a stab in the dark and guess wrong? And I think it has a lot of truth to it. What is required is not the clearest. What we do have and think about it, it's 2018. We have a 2010 guidance document from the OCR. Doesn't talk about the format, talks about the elements that you need for a risk analysis. You know, as an attorney with a legal background, that's exactly where we're going to go, Marcy, when we're responding to an OCR complaint and they ask for a risk analysis. Oh, you know, you're going to hope your security department put it together with the elements that were required. But you look at the document and there's not much to it. And it's kind of dated. Mm-hmm. So that can cause a stab in the dark that obviously failed if zero got the top level. Yeah. I mean, you think about how many top healthcare companies could have been in that mix. Yeah. Emily mentioned that, that, that zero, not even one of the covered <laughs> entities who had the desk audit 
received a top score of a one. So, um, you know, some of the, there obviously is a lot of room between a, a score of a one and a five, but, um, but that, I think that that is so shocking. So you have no ones. So that basically means that all of them are split between half are like twos and threes and half are fours and fives. Uh, so uh, twos and threes are like they ha- maybe have done some type of risk analysis and risk management efforts, but by far it's not complete. And then fours and fives are like, did they do anything? <laughs> uh, some of the, the examples or the description of a four is audit results indicate the entity made a negligible efforts to comply with the audit requirements. Policies and procedures submitted for review are copied directly from an association template. Evidence of training is poorly documented and generic. And then F5 is the entity did not provide evidence of serious attempt to comply with the rules and enable individual rights with regard to PHI. So it's just they have nothing in place almost. So to have 21% of who they audited in that category is quite shocking. Especially when I work with people because, you know, from consulting, I laugh. New people getting into compliance, HIPAA is like one of the first things that they focus on because they know it's there. They worked they worked with HIPAA regardless of what world they came from, clinical, billing and coding, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Everybody knows HIPAA. And so they kind of focus on that area first. Yeah. So I think it's surprising that still 21% of them have nothing. It's completely shocking. I mean, really mature programs that probably work with consultants to prepare their risk analysis and risk management plan. Even those entities, no one got a number one. So to say the least, I think we can assume that the requirements are a bit fuzzy or vague. Maybe on top of it, just because the rules are required and addressable, you know, it makes it kind of, it's not too black and white how to do that risk assessment. One hand, you're using your toolkit and saying, okay, these five addressable items are not reasonable for us to implement. You know, let's keep an eye on those, see if we can mitigate those another way, all the way to what are our big risks and how will we reduce those. To not have a lot of guidance on that does leave a lot of leeway. Um, When you look at the 2010 document, honestly, you should think of it as your legal document risk analysis. You might need a lot more detailed roadmap for security to use. Yeah. It's just probably not enough. And for me, I think um, a lot of compliance professionals, especially if they come from the business or the clinical side of things, uh, the, the regular compliance program elements like policies and procedures, really those that scored a four or five and don't even have policies and procedures in place It makes me wonder why that's such a basic element of a compliance program. You could at least have that in place. When it gets into some of the more um, IT-related information and knowledge, then I think it's harder for people coming from the business or the clinical side of things and compliance to understand those. And so they may get a little bogged down. But these fours and fives, they're... Um, the covered entities that scored four and five, they didn't even have some of the basic parts of a compliance program. So, um, so what would you, of course, some of who of these covered entities were probably small to medium, and then some of them were larger. 
So uh, what do you think are some options that a small provider, a small, like a critical access hospital with limited resources, you know, what are some options? Because they can't do a risk analysis with 170 points of risk and then have 170 points of risk mitigation or, or the risk management plan because they probably don't even have a full-time security officer or they probably don't even have a full-time compliance officer. I think that the best option for though, I mean, it's and it's actually similar to how a massive organization has to operate. You can't do everything you need to do or educate the way you need to by limiting who performs the functions. You have to kind of draw those dotted lines everywhere you can, whether you pick, you know, department managers that are trained in helping you with that. Gap analysis, not the gap analysis, but the risk assessment. On a yearly basis, maybe it's more frequent than that. Maybe you can automate it as much as you can where, you know, specific questions go out or specific kinds of, maybe you do more more assessment all throughout the year and it's not just once a year. But you have to partner with those on the floor and those who have access to the PHI. So really, there has to be some level of progression, even if it's, you know, a multidisciplinary group of people with, with maybe not any security expertise, yeah. but, but moving forward, even if it's at a really slow pace. Yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with that because I know smaller providers and um, hospitals have a difficult time with resources and having the expertise but I think that that is a much favorable, much more favorable look if you're being audited to showing a gradual improvement rather than just no improvement at all. So definitely. Okay, so um, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but you know, what are some of the other things that we can learn from the phase two audits? I think... I think, I mean, it was almost reassuring that, not reassuring, but comforting to know we're not the only, that we're not the only ones taking a stab in the dark, that these are vague things. Yes. That alone is was a bit of a comfort to me. Oh, everyone is trying for this. At the same time, this subject just has the tendency to make people kind of avoid it. Like it, that vagueness and like these big documents that have legal ramifications, but we don't quite know if we're hitting the mark, it makes you avoid the topic. Mm-hmm. So, Which is the exact opposite because security almost, I think, as far as a, a comprehensive risk assessment for an organization, security and privacy are probably going to end up right at the top of their highest risks year after year. And they are. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it seems like the, the industry is one step ahead of the healthcare, you know, IT industry and, you know, the bad guys, you know, yeah. the ransomware and the malware. It seems like they're always one step ahead. And so uh, I think that that's why it ends up, um, it's quite volatile. And so it ends up right at the top of the risk assessment. So I think, Marcy, that that kind of supports the belief we were talking about earlier don't separate your transformation department and your business development department from your legal and compliance department. Don't have it be a turf war. Don't have it be so segregated. The people that are on those front lines that are kind of entrepreneurial in spirit and the transformative attitudes, 
they are noticing the bells and whistles. They're noticing how we can push healthcare forward. It's not top of mind, you know, why can't I connect this tool to our network? It's, they're not thinking of the risks involved. There's got to be even more of a partnership between cybersecurity and IT folks and transformation kind of biz dev type folks because what they all want the same thing at the end, but they're traditionally moving at a much different pace. And I, I think it takes all of those different teams to help one another understand what's happening so you can yes. truly you know, realize what risk lies there. If you want to impact your risk, you don't, you don't rely on a once-a-year online training or cybersecurity coming in for like twice a year to tell you about the highest risks. It's called you better be walking in step with each other. What are you wanting to innovate? Are you wanting to do... Um, you know, something with your patient portal, portal and scheduling and online accounts. They need a partner. You need a partner all the time. Yeah. You need to invite them to your meetings or to your project frequently. You cannot just do it at the end. Yeah. I think of all different types of departments, you know, in a, a physician group or a hospital system can play into you know, the, the organization's successful security plan because, I mean, you even take like, you know, supply, you know, purchasing. You know, they're purchasing things that connect to your network, hold patient data. People don't yeah. realize that, you know, a huge percentage of medical equipment now actually holds patient data. So yeah. understanding even in the procurement part of things what are you getting what are the security what's the security profile of this piece of equipment you know as me as a compliance officer I can't tell you what the security profile is on that piece of equipment so I have to have the cooperation with you know information systems and the IT department or else I really can't perform my job to the level that I need to and sometimes I found this helpful in privacy. I mean, you can just start using words like we dissected today. What is the difference? The word risk is used probably every other sentence, like in privacy and security. And are you throwing words around and do you really, do the, do the multidisciplinary type departments, are they all thinking of the same? I'm talking PHI, period. Like the more we kept trying to train people what PHI is, there was a different opinion every day. There can be even between privacy and security. The more you kind of drill down and say, give me an example, tell me how that, how you use this tool, where the data flows from, the more you can get, get out of the lingo and get into what happens and what would happen if a breach occurs, the better. Yeah. Get out of the legalese that. and just talk about it. Definitely. I, even education's that way. It's apply what's going to happen in their job. Not, yeah. they don't want the definition of what high tech is. It's how does this apply to me? Yeah. Well, that has been really good advice. And thank you for answering those questions. I've enjoyed today. Um, so uh, thanks for joining us for uh, our chat today with Emily Haley. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for listening to Compliance Conversations. <laughs>